this is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 12. Today's podcast is particularly jam-packed. I'm talking to Angela Ackerman, who, I'm not going to lie, I had to try and not fangirl because she has been one of these long-distance mentors for pretty much the whole of my writing career. I had the first iteration of the Emotion Thesaurus, which I'm sure most of you have, and I own all of her books in paperback and some of them in digital as well, and yeah, I just, I've learned a lot, and I think you guys are going to learn a lot from this episode too. We're talking business planning, we're talking pay it forward, forward marketing, we're talking how to create emotions and also selling rights so that it is it is packed basically and I hope that you find it as useful as I did. So to this week's question, I don't think anybody answered the financial question last week which I find particularly interesting. I almost wanted to say why didn't anyone answer the question last week? week as this week's question, but I thought better of it. Um, I wonder if it's still because money's taboo. Um, I wonder if it's because it's a topic that you guys aren't interested in. I don't know, but I did find that interesting. The question that you all did answer was around the transcripts. Now, I wanted to know last week whether people read the transcripts on the show because I do find them quite labour intensive um, to produce and obviously because this is a free show there is only so much time I can put into creating it. Um, so I wanted to know how useful you found it because obviously if you find the transcripts useful I want to give them to you. Um, and. Um, <laughs> Most of you did say that they were useful. I'm not sure if that's because those of you who don't read them didn't comment or, or what, but because all of the answers were super similar, I'm not going to do shout outs this week. I'm just going to summarize. And essentially you either preferred reading them instead of the audio, which I think plays to possibly the, the written audience rather than the people who are actually listening to the audio, um, or you use them to refer to if there was a particularly useful point. So, you know, I, I think they are useful. I think I might have to find another way to produce them um, just so that they're not as time consuming. But on to today's question. Today, I want to know what business planning methods you find most useful. I have gone round and round the houses with business planning and I've more or less got to the point, as I mentioned in the first show of this year, where I'm trying something new and I'm trying quarterly goals instead of um, yearly or, I mean, in my head I have yearly goals, but I'm just not writing them down or committing to them because then I'm going to rebel against them. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, tell me what methods. Is there a methodology that you follow? Is there some somebody's particular book that you like, um, hit me with it. How do you business plan? What methods do you find most useful? Okay, on to personal progress. <laughs> I'm so excited to tell you guys this. I can barely contain myself. I am so freaking close to the end of the anatomize, uh, the anatomizing. <laughs> God, I'm that excited. I can't even speak. 
I am so close to the end of the anatomy of prose, I can't even begin to tell you. So I am recording this on the morning of Monday the 20th of January, and this podcast episode will air on the 22nd of January, which is Wednesday. I think within these next two days, I will have finished. <laughs> I am so, literally so excited. I, I think the reason I am beyond excited this time is twofold. The first one is because I'm really, really, really proud of this book. Um, I have been really super vulnerable with it, but I, it, and I'll explain all of that in another episode, probably an episode that I dedicate to the launch, but um, the second reason is because I haven't finished a book in a fucking year. So I am even more excited. I haven't finished a book since I left my job. And I, you know, there was all that transition, blah, blah, nonsense. So this is the first book I have finished since I quit my job. And for that reason, I am super proud. The last time I published was the 4th of January, 2019. So it's been over a year since I published. And so I'm gonna make this a big old year for publishing, guys. Um, yeah, so oh, within two days, I'm done. I'm going to stop talking about it, but I'm going to be screaming from the rooftops and I'm really sorry. <coughs> Lowest voice. <coughs> uh, yes, so I'll be going straight into edits. I'm not one of these people that um, waits for any period of time. I just, I get it done, I get it edited and I get it sent to my critique partners and editors. So, ladies and gentlemen, I think that means within... Okay, wait, no, no, calm down. Calm, calm down, Sasha. Calm down. Maybe not next week, but maybe the following week, I'm going to have a launch date. Yay! <laughs> okay, in other news, I have uh, written two guest articles um, recently. The first one was over at writershelpingwriters.net. That is Angela Ackerman and Becca Puglisi's website. And I was writing about how, what are the basic things that you have to do financially to set yourself up uh, in your writing business. So I will drop the links uh, to that in the show notes. And the other article I wrote was a quick fire, four tips for helping you create your villains. Um, and that was over on the Insecure Writer Support Group. Now, the last newsy update before I go on, as some of you know, I'm the Alliance of Independent Authors conference and blog manager. So I run their twice yearly conference. So I run their twice yearly conference. And at the moment, they are having a whopper of a January sale. So what happens is the conference is free to everybody for about 48 to 48 hours. Yeah, 48 hours, two, three days anyway. <laughs> See me trying to add another 24 to 48. <laughs> Hence the pause. God. Hey, guys, seriously, like, I am not that bad at maths. I'm just bad at maths under pressure. Um, I did get a good grade at school, I swear. Um, anyway, so the conference after that time goes in behind a paywall and it's usually $199 to get access. But when you get access, not only do you get access to the current conference, you get access to all of the past conferences and all of the future conferences. So you're getting like over 100 hours of content and all of our sessions are from top industry professionals, you know, the likes of Michael Andalays, um, the likes of Brian Meeks and Mark Lefebvre and 
oh my goodness, Ricardo from Reedsy and all of those big, um, you know, industry professionals. So it is well worth it. I will put a link to the um, pass and how to get that in the show notes. Just a couple of points. This is time limited. The sale ends on the 24th of January. So when this airs on Wednesday, you will only have two days. And if you're listening in the future, well, I'm sorry, but you missed the sale. Um, And the second one is, I am an affiliate for the conference. I'm a speaker at the conference, so it's only right that I am also affiliate. So if you do decide to purchase it using my link, then thank you very much for the coffee that you'll be giving me. Um, Okay, Listener Rebel of the Week. Uh, This week, the Listener Rebel is Zach Jeffrey. This is a quick little story, but one that I love nonetheless. Zach says the theatre department in my college cancelled a reading of my work because one of the actors skipped class. So I borrowed the keys to the theatre and we had the reading anyway. I love that. I love that, you know, rebellions can come in any shape or form. Um, They don't have to be big. They can be small. They can be massive. And I love that you just rebelled and and did the reading anyway. Um, that's the kind of thing I'd have done. So good for you. Um, so if you would like to be a rebel of the week, please, please, please do send in your stories. Uh, it can be, as I've said, any kind of rebellion, uh, big or small, or in between for that matter. And you can email your story to the rebel. Oh my goodness me. I'm going to put my teeth in. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. So I have an interesting book recommendation this week. Normally, I try to stick to, you know, business or writing craft books. But today I've got a fiction book for you. As I draw near the end of The Anatomy of Prose, I wanted to share with you over the next couple of weeks a couple of the books that I have read and loved and think have excellent prose. And the first one is The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert. Now, I'm recommending this one particularly because I've just started the sequel called The Night Country, um, which came out this month. But The Hazelwood is an interesting one. It is, I believe, young adult. It's sort of set in the real world and the fairy tale world. It's a bit creepy. Um, But what I love about Melissa Albert's style of writing is that her prose is luxurious it's very it is if it was any more luxurious it might be purple prose but it's not she she definitely keeps it in the acceptable um end of that spectrum and also she has this wonderfully exquisite way of describing characters her voice is absolutely crystal clear um i've never read anyone like her and for that reason i think she's a very 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 interesting author to dissect and you know examine the methods and the tactics and the devices and the tricks that she's using in her prose in order for you to be able to lift some of those tactics and methods into your own work. So um, yeah, my recommendation is The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert this week. No new patrons today, but as always, a massive, massive thank you to all my current patrons who helped to ensure that this podcast continues. And on that note, I did send out this month's uh, question box to ask what you would like the topics to be. I've had a couple and I will do um, the other ones that I've been requested in 
subsequent months, but um, one particular one requested a sneak peek at the anatomy of prose. So I will pick out an excerpt this month and um, bear in mind it won't have been completely edited, but I will, yeah, I will give you guys a sneak peek at it. If you would like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus essays, posts, content, sneak peeks, you can do so by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black and that's Sasha with a C and not an S. On with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am with the absolutely amazing Angela Ackerman. Angela is a writing coach, an international speaker and co-author of the best-selling book The Emotion Thesaurus, A Writer's Guide to Character Expression, which is now an expanded second edition, which I own and if you don't you really ought to. Uh, she also has many many sequels of which I also own all of them and I highly recommend them I'm trying not to fangirl here clearly it's not working um her books are available in seven languages are sourced by U.S. universities recommended by agents and editors and are used by novelists screenwriters and psychologists around the world Angela is also the co-founder of the popular site Writers Helping Writers, as well as One Stop Shop for Writers, an innovative, creative library built to help writers elevate their storytelling. Welcome, Angela. It is a huge honour to have you here today. I think I am the one who's honoured. What? Oh my goodness, I think my brain just melted. Um, for those who don't know, I have um, been a long-term fan of Angela and Becca and uh, all of their thesauri, um, of which I, I, I've had the first one for an awfully long time, and it's all tatty and covered in coffee and, and crumpled edges, which I now find um, uh, horrifying because I try to keep my books very clean and smooth. But um, yeah, I, I, I think you, you, the books that you guys create are just the number one writing tool, uh, writing book that every single author should own so yes thank you so much for coming oh and uh, yeah so sorry I will stop I will stop I just thank you for being here (laughs) oh my gosh you're so sweet and thank you very much um you know it 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 never gets old hearing that our our books are actually really helping people because it's I don't know description and show don't tell specifically is is something that we all struggle with to some degree Mm. um it's something that we all hear, show don't tell, um, but we don't really understand the extent of how it infiltrates like every aspect of, of storytelling. So, totally. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. And, and it's not just show don't tell though. You have your, your, um, your locations, your rural, your urban, your emotional wounds. And I, oh, I have to say, I'm not sure if it's the wounds or the uh, original emotion thesaurus that I love best, but both of those, I think, combined really help a writer to dig down and create better characterization and deeper characters. So whatever you're doing, hit pause, go order the books. Um, Okay, right, let's get on uh, with the episode. So tell listeners a little bit more about you and your journey and how you got into full-time writing? Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm a Canadian, so I live in Canada. And um, like most writers out there, you feel a little bit isolated when you start. Um, I wasn't involved in any in-person groups. I didn't know any other writers in my real world. So I went online 
to try to connect with other people because I knew that, you know, I thought that I was a pretty good storyteller, but I needed help and I needed to learn how to become a stronger writer. And I really needed the feedback from other people to kind of gauge where I was on the path and if I was headed in the right direction, if what I was writing was actually publishable, all of that. And so um, I ended up on a site called One Stop for Writers, or sorry, <laughs> Critique Circle. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and uh, the Critique Circle is an online critique um, site where people from all over the world in all different genres, they kind of get together and they put their work up for other people to critique. And I learned so much there, um, just so much about good, strong storytelling. And I really, uh, through the eyes of other people, I, I learned kind of where my weaknesses were. Um, and this happens to be where I met uh, Becca, Becca Puglisi who is my co-author and she's my partner in crime on my blog and at One Stop for Writers. And uh, her and I, we just really enjoyed each other's work and um, we really forged a strong friendship um, and both really were passionate about learning writing craft and growing as writers and also helping other people. And I think that's kind of where we sort of jogged left a little bit because we started the Critique Circle, uh, both of us with plans of you know becoming fiction authors um, and that's still a plan for both of us but along the way we realized that we really um, had a passion for learning writing and sharing what we what we know we started blogging together and that blog led to this whole series of thesaurus books that we write um, which look at different aspects of description that is just really hard for writers to master um, and to use fully uh, if you take setting, for example, a lot of people think of setting as, you know, well, we want to make sure that we're describing the setting vividly enough that people can see what's going on. But really, setting is responsible for so much more than that. There's so much more that you can do with it, mm -hmm. including, you know, characterizing your story's cast. Um, you can use it to foreshadow. You can evoke mood. Um, you can steer your reader's emotions, steer the character's emotions. Um, you know, there's just so many different ways to use sensory description to really power up your novel. And so we started exploring each topic and really digging deep into each one. Um, you mentioned the emotion thesaurus and the emotional wound thesaurus. Um, a big piece that has resonated with writers is anything to do with characterization, because as you've noted, the deeper a character is, um, you know, the more compelling it, it is to follow in a story. And, and you just you feel really pulled into the character's point of view and what they're experiencing. And it's just mm. so much better of an experience for readers. Yeah. So yeah, so we started uh, we started writing these writing guides and um, it turned into this whole huge massive thing that uh, that's kind of been our main focus is, is writing our writing guides and then um, bringing them to life as well through One Stop for Writers, um, which is a site that we have that not only has all of our thesauruses that we've ever created, which are like 16 of them. I know there's only six books, but there's actually, we've, writ we've written many, many, many different thesauruses on different topics. And then Beck and I also like building different types of creative tools that will really help writers um, demystify different aspects of storytelling, like building strong characters, like structuring stories, um, and just making it all easier so that writers focus on what they're best at, which is actually writing the story. So of those 16, obviously, I'm clearly asking here for entirely selfish reason, reasons, but um, are those other, or are all of the 16 going to come out, please, please? As books? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to break your heart a little. Oh. Um, probably not. Or if, um, well, I won't say no for sure, but uh, some books are, some topics are more suited to be books than others. Yeah. Um, because some topics are bigger than others. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, we have one that's all about different types of weather, and it's super awesome. I mean, it really um, shows writers how to use that element effectively in your storytelling to, you know, create that foreshadowing and, and to build that mood and things like that, to stay away from the cliches that we all know about um, and use that sensory description. But there's really only so many different types of weather that you can describe. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be a book in the sense that people are used to seeing our writing guides. It would be a smaller volume. Yeah. Um, yeah. But others will definitely become uh, books. Uh, the one we're working on right now is all on occupations, and that's the next one that will be out in 2020. I mean, even if you published a smaller uh, version, I, I would buy it. And I'm pretty sure everybody listening would buy it too. So I mean, whatever you publish, we're going to buy. Um, I, I wanted to come back on one of the things that you were saying Um about emotion because it's uh so i'm writing i'm working on something called the anatomy of prose at the moment so it's kind of looking at the the nitty-gritty detail of what what you do at the sentence level and how that um can impact character creation and you know your you, what is that that aspect where writers learn how to find their voice you know it's not prescriptive in the this is right and this is wrong because I think that's all bullshit anyway um you know a writer's voice is a, is a writer's voice but something you said about emotion and I think that is the universal thread that that kind of pulls every reader through the journey but something I was thinking about today um I can't remember exactly what you said that that um jogged me but I think the more detailed you go, and this is the beauty of your books, because they have so much detail in there and so many little, um, uh, what are the, what's the word, you know, like rabbit warrens you can do go down with the level of detail. It's the detail in, in what each character says, does, describes, feels, um, that really makes emotion universe universal, which sounds bizarre because when you write a character with... Uh, a huge level of de detail that is based on the things and their perceptions of how they look at setting. This is what you're saying. Um, how, you know, how they're perceiving and feeling about the setting, even though it's personal to them, it's that level of detail that makes it universal that we then reflect in, which, and so that is one of the reasons that I love um, the emotion thesaurus. And in fact, all of them really, because you do give us so much detail that we can, the, the the number of of possibilities for for creating characters is just infinite so yeah thanks guys um okay so for as long as i've known you you've used the pay it forward marketing method so could you tell listeners what that means first of all um okay i i um it's, i don't think of it that way but i can see why other people would think of it that way um for me i just I do something that I really enjoy, which is to help people. So um, basically what I do with my marketing is I build goodwill with people by giving generously. Um, and it's, um, it's not a gimmick or an angle. It's not anything like that. It's just that helping people is a really big part of my philosophy. It's a big part of Becca's philosophy. It's one of the reasons that we, you know, gel so well together. Um, like I said, we really are passionate about this. And so we basically feel that if you can help someone, then do. And so we've incorporated that, you know, into our marketing in the sense that it's all about understanding who our audience really is 
and what they need most. Um, we're very lucky in the sense that our audience are writers. And so as writers ourselves, we're really keyed into exactly what it is that we all need and where we struggle the most. And so it's very easy for Beck and I to sort of sit back, think about those struggles and go, okay, well, how can we help? What can we do um, with our knowledge, with the tools that we've built, with our um, connections to other people, with the resources that we have, with the different kinds of um, links that we curate, whatever it is, the people that we know, how can we help other writers solve these problems? And, and that's essentially what we do, is just really think about how we can deliver things that our audience needs. And this builds trust because people know that we are there for them, that, that we are invested in their success, that we believe that we're all in this together and, and that uh, what we're doing is very genuine. And because they, they trust us and they trust our recommendations and they know that we're, we're really invested in them, I think that it creates an environment where they feel really good about um, promoting our work, um, sharing our work with other people because they find it valuable. They found, find the information that we share really valuable. So um, it's a twofold thing where they want to reciprocate in, in a sense that we have helped them in some way and they want to help us in return. But they also are being genuine about it because they too are getting value from the things that we do and they care about other writers and they want those other writers to benefit in the same way that they have. So it's kind of this, um, this beautiful engine um, where we're all just really helping each other in, in whatever way you know, we're best suited to do. Mm. Absolutely. And I think you guys have really found that thing that you're passionate about as well. And I think that obviously shows in, in all of all of the things that you do. And I I think when you embody that fully, you it is like your tribe kind of flocks to you as well as you kind of giving out. And it's like this beautiful reciprocal kind of, I don't know, karma, I suppose. It totally um, is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, it's a real lesson to, you know, as part of this indie self-publishing kind of journey to work out who you are and, and what you want to say and then say it passionately. But yeah, I just, yeah, I totally agree. So for anybody who, who would like to to give back I suppose and feels like they would like to use a very similar ethos or, or mindset do you have any tips on how they should start and how they should build their own platform I suppose well I think that it definitely has to feel it has to be something that's authentically them right um, it has to be a part of who you are um, you can't think of it as like a tactic uh, it's because it's not, it's not a marketing tactic. If you're only doing it to get something, then it's not going to feel genuine and other people are going to know that. Mm -hmm. So really you want to be thinking about what you can give and not what you can get and just trust that everything will work out. And it doesn't really matter if like in, in some senses I, I get uh, other people who will say, well, Angela, that works really great for you because you're a nonfiction author and you have writers as your audience. But what about me as a fiction author? Like how do I you know, how can I build this sort of relationship with my readers? And it, it really, the same techniques can happen. I don't like you saying techniques, but the same mechanism can happen for a fiction author just as it can for someone who's a nonfiction author. The only difference is the subject matter expert um, area. So as a nonfiction author, I mean, I know that my audience specifically, they're going to struggle with a lot of things to do with writing craft. 
Mm -hmm. um, they're going to struggle with a lot of things to do with um, imposter syndrome and, and all of these different things. So the information and the help that I am going to give them is going to meet those needs. But a fiction author, they are going to have a very specific audience based on the type of books that they write. Um, if they write something about, I don't know, if they write romance books that incorporate dogs in some way, like maybe every single romance that they write, it's all about dog lovers, it's always about a, a vet and, and somebody who trains dogs or rescues dogs, and there's always that element of just people who really love dogs, and that's part of the romance plot that they're, that they're building in each book. If they've written something like that, clearly the common denominator with their reading audience is that they're going to be people who love dogs. They're going to be romance readers, but they're also going to love dogs. So that is a subject matter, uh, a subject that where they can be a subject matter expert in, and they can think about, okay, my audience that really loves, you know, they love dogs, they love hearing about dogs. What kind of content can I share that's um, going to entertain them, that's going to interest them, that maybe is going to help them out with little problems that they have with their own dogs if they have a dog? Um, what kind of, uh, you know, funny videos can I share? What kind of memes can I share? What kind of sites are out there that are going to get people interested? What events are happening that have to do with dogs? You know, what great charities are there that are doing excellent works for, for people who, who love dogs? There's, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole world of information out there keyed towards this very specific group of people that are going to enjoy this book. And above and beyond all of that, there are also going to be other authors out there writing books that are about people who love dogs too. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that uh, some writers, they feel re really resistant in recommending other people's books that are a lot like theirs. But I don't understand this because the reality is, is we're not competition. Um, if I read a book that's really good, like if, uh, when I read your books, for example, I know they're really high quality. I know that these are gonna help writers. I don't see you as competition. I see you as someone that has an incredible amount of knowledge that's really going to help writers. And I feel really good about sending people to your books and to your site. And I don't think of you as, as competition because the reality is, is that, I mean, can we ever have enough craft books? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, we honest, definitely we, cannot. No. no, we cannot. And, and our readers, they, one thing we know about them is that they love to read. Mm -hmm. And we will never, ever, ever be able to write books fast enough to keep them satisfied. Exactly. So why not pass them on to other people where we've read their books, we love their books, we're, we're happy to play matchmaker. And again, that continues to build that trust. Readers understand, you know what? Okay, Angela, she's busy. She hasn't put out a book in you know six months. It's okay. I've read her book. It's all good. But she says to read these three books and I'm going to read them because I trust her judgment. I know these books are going to be great. And it's the same thing if you're a fiction author. It, you know, it's okay to promote other authors um, because it keeps your readers engaged with you. They, they're engaged because they know that even though you're working on your next book and you don't have anything to maybe offer them right now as far as new reads, you're still thinking about them. You still care about them and you still want to make sure that they're care being taken care of while they're waiting for your next book. So absolutely, this, this method of building trust and being there for your audience and understanding what it is that they really need, what they really want, what they really enjoy, um, that's all super important. And it doesn't matter if you write fiction or nonfiction, either way you can do that.
Yeah, oh, there's so many things that I love about everything that you've just said. There's a phrase that I hear really often in the indie community. I and I always get it slightly wrong, but I think it it I think it's the rising tide lifts all the boats or something. Yes, something yes, along yes, those lines. Yeah, and I just think that's so true because indies are so willing to collaborate and work with each other. And it is so true. You know, I am not um, one of these people who reads um, as many books as as some of the... um, I write young adult um, for my fiction. At the moment, I'm writing young adult fantasy. But some of the girls I see on Instagram are just consuming books. There is no possible way an author in their entire lifetime could satisfy that kind of voracious reader. Um, you know, I, I think I read between 60 and 75 books a year. And even, you know, even I, that's a lot of books for one author amazing, to be yeah. to be able to produce that many books in a year, let alone, you know, and I, you know, that's the beauty of being a reader is that we like to delve into all these different things. So I love that. And also, um, I, I sort of, it's quite, goes back to what you were saying earlier about finding that that thing that you love and that you're passionate about passionate about and then going deep you know creating as much content as you possibly can to share that with people who who love the things that you love as well i was thinking a, a bit about um like this explosion of micro not micro uh, expressionist poetry on instagram that you know and and that's how they're finding their audience and and also podcasting i know quite a few fiction authors now who are finding vast amounts of readers because they're publishing whether it be short fiction or horror fiction or whatever on podcasts so yeah i just love everything that you're saying um next question so i there is no possible way i could have you on this show without asking about creating emotion in characters what are the key elements to creating emotion um, I would say first and foremost is building a bond between your reader and your character. Um, because readers are not going to care about what the character's going through and their emotions if they don't if they don't care about that character. If it's if they can't really understand them and feel empathy for them. So you really wanna build that bond. Um, really know the character inside and out, understand like um what's motivating them, what they fear all of those different things so that you can build these really realistic, compelling layers that make a character feel like a real person. Um, that's Real people are complex and our characters should be complex as well. And I think that um, when we build characters that are really deep and you know they have, they're almost a mirror of the real world. They're a mirror of the reader themselves. You know, they, they have, um, you know, they have common fears, they have common experiences that they've had and they, feel emotions the the drivers of what might be happening in the story to the character to cause an emotion that might be unique it might be something that the reader has never experienced themselves but they've all experienced that emotion at some point in time you know we all know what it's like to feel betrayed or powerless Um, we all know what it's like to fail or or to screw up and so if you can kind of build the deep character and really build in struggles and emotions that readers can relate to, that is really going to create that connection between the reader and the character. And then when they're, when they're in the moment and they're experiencing this, this situation that is causing them to feel these complex emotions, sometimes conflicting emotions, readers are really going to feel drawn in because they've been there. They've felt those things. They've, 
been stuck with really terrible options and choices. They've been in situations where they've made a big mistake and now they have to figure out how are they going to undo this thing or how are they going to face up to it? How are they going to accept responsibility for it? All of these things are common experiences that we can pull from the everyday world, put them into storytelling that are just going to make that character seem so much more real and um, relatable. So I would definitely say like that's that's a really big part of it. I think the other thing is to understand, again, when you're digging deep to understand who your character is and really looking at their history, understanding, you know, where their personality came from, all of that kind of stuff, you want to be thinking about that internal landscape, um, especially the emotional landscape and their emotional range. So you want to know things like, is your character expressive or are they reserved? Are they the type of person who is going to share what they feel? Are they going to you know, want to sit down and talk to somebody, talk it through, or are they sort of the type of people that they just, they bottle it all up, they hold it in until like there's this big explosion. Um, when they act on what they feel, you know, what's that going to look like? Is it is it going to come through um, hurtful things that they say, um, really definitive actions that maybe they regret afterwards, um, or is it more subtle? And so understanding those things about your character, it just, it, it adds these layers of realism um, and makes that person feel so much more unique, like a real person. Mm. The thing that we have to remember about our characters is that every action, choice, and decision and behavior should always line up with who they are, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's really important because that's how our readers actually, they pay attention to the character's behavior to navigate the story, to understand what's important to the character. What should I care about? What's, what's the goal here? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And so understanding who your character is deep down and how emotion is going to come out through those actions and decisions and choices. Um, it just, it makes the whole novel so much more compelling and the journey so much more compelling because everything lines up beautifully with who that character is. So I can't underscore enough to really understand who your character is deep down. Yeah, I, I think that's fantastic advice, especially um, you were saying earlier about what their reaction would be if they were, say, for example, a um, sort of emotionally reserved person. I think that's really key because it also creates consistency. And I think that's part of being human. We are very habitual creatures and we react in very um, predictable ways um, until we suddenly don't. And quite, quite often that's when, you know, your protagonist will fail face a obstacle or whatever and then eventually they get over their flaw which is whatever's keeping them consistent and stopping them from fulfilling their um, uh, um I can't think of the word <laughs> you know what I'm talking about um yeah so, have you ever seen Game of Thrones out of interest I haven't <gasps> I know I know, I know. <laughs> oh my gosh OMG <laughs> okay wow well I guess I can't talk about I that then <laughs> I totally want to. Yeah. But it was uh, not on my channels. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I was going to say um, George R. R. Martin does some of that really, really well because he quite often will um, create characters. Uh, with really strong inner values and they're very they behave very consistently against those inner values and then suddenly he will pit a very um difficult decision against those inner values and i think that always makes for a really interesting um characterization and uh, plot 
totally agree. Yeah. Oh, I love God. it. I love it when any character's morals, moral ground, oh, their, yeah. their line in the sand is challenged. Yeah. You put them in a situation where, you know, they really do have to decide, like, am I going to hold to this belief? Yeah. Yeah, it. yeah, me too. Or when they have two bad decisions, which bad decision do they go with? I always, exactly. I, yeah. Oh, I love, that. I love it, I love it. Oh, I'm geeking out. Uh, anyway, sorry. Right, uh, nitty gritty. Let's let's go down to the sentence level. What kind of techniques could an author use to evoke emotion? I would say uh, to really think carefully about each and every word. Um, often we can do a lot more with less if we power up our language. So you're going to want to use very specific verbs, um, verbs that are, they plant an image in the reader's mind. You want to describe actions and thoughts and viscerals um, in a way that just conveys that immediate image that a reader can really picture it. So um, I wrote down an example here. I'm going to read it off. Um, I could say something like, Laura paced, her mind stuffed with the hate-laced barbs that she would unleash on Desi when he got home. Or I could say something like, Laura stomped laps around the kitchen table, hands flexing, jaws tight. Desi was a dead man. Like, which one can you actually see? Oh, yeah, 100%. So that's what we need to think about is how, how can I show it to the reader? Like, how can I build something? You know, you can imagine those hands flexing, like, in and out, just the pacing, the jaw tight, you know, teeth kind of gritting together. You can imagine all of those things. You can see it. Um, and then, uh, you know, Desi was a dead man. Like, boom, you get the sense of what that character's feeling in that moment. So um, that's kind of what we want to do is just make sure that everything is conveying that, that image and that we're trying to keep that word economy. Because especially if the pacing is really strong, you know, you've got a high action scene or something like that. Um, you don't want sentences and sentences of flowery description. Um, that's just not realistic for a type that type of scene. You know, your character mm -hmm. isn't going to stop and think about everything, right? They're just going to act. They're not going to notice everything. They're just going to focus on the things that are critical to to their mindset in that moment. So it's really about putting ourselves in the character's shoes and thinking like they would in that moment, and think about what are they perceiving from the room that they're in and why and 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 only painting a picture of the details that really matter not everything not that there's a half there's a there's a cold cup of coffee on the table or you know like details that don't matter to the scene you want to focus mm. on the things that matter that reinforce that emotional state yeah absolutely and and the beauty of this is you can play with the technique and the pacing so I was it's funny I was literally writing about this today in that 90% of your action scene should be you know these short staccato sentences a fast pace actions very little you know emotional sensory description if it's kind of a hardcore battle scene but then you can play with that and let's say you your protagonist sees somebody that they care deeply about die you know you can slow down one or two seconds of of their realization of what's happened and you know extend the metaphor or because that's what matters to that character in that moment so yeah oh i love that and i, lo and I love well, the I fact think, sorry and that's so no 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 i didn't mean to interrupt I, I i think just playing on what you said i think too like that's where symbolism can come in and be very yeah, powerful yeah. if someone has you know that you love has just died you know, what is the character going to notice about that person that has special meaning to them? Mm. You know, is it a 
is it a gift that they gave them? You know, are they wearing something? You know, did they just give them a flower like five minutes before and the person just stuck it in their lapel and now, oh my gosh, they're dead. And, you know, like it just slow things down and focus on that one detail that has a connection to that character that, that symbolizes something greater than what it actually is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, love it. I'm uh, I, I feel super geeking out right now on on all of all things wordy. Um what so let's let's flip this on its head and talk about mistakes that you see authors making with trying what you know when they're trying to create emotion. What what do you see most often? Um a few things. I would say one would be not going deep enough. Um so not personalizing that emotion to that specific character um, and not letting their character show a vulnerable side. I think that's a big one. Mm. Um, a lot of a lot of writers don't want to hurt their characters. They especially if they're writing um, characters that are tough, you know, they've been hurt. They've you know, the world has hurt them. They're, they're damaged. They're damaged goods. And um, it's hard sometimes because legitimately they have a very high shield around themselves, especially where their emotions are concerned because life has you know, served them up a lot of lemons and so they're very used to getting hurt and they don't wanna get hurt again and so they do create the shield around themselves. But you do need to build in moments where that shield slips, where you do show that inner vulnerability, where you do get real with how the character feels in the moment in a specific circumstance where maybe they've failed or there's a mistake that they've made or they feel something unexpected, something mm. that they thought maybe they were dead to because they've just been hurt so much in the past and then unexpectedly they're affected in a way that they weren't expecting. I think those kind of moments are super powerful and, and by not allowing that vulnerability to show through because writers are afraid that maybe the reader's gonna think that their character's weak, I think that that's a mistake. I think instead it actually makes them seem more real, more like real people. Yeah. So I think that that's a big one. Um, the other one that I see is is naming emotions. And this is something that is so easily fixed um, with a search and replace to, to look for places where you actually name the emotion. It's very rare that you actually need to say what an emotion is because that's what show don't tell is all about. If you're showing an emotion through something that the character is doing, through the way that they're perceiving their world, through thoughts that they have, whatever that looks like through their actions, you won't need to tell by telling the emotion, by naming that emotion. Mm -hmm. And often writers use, they'll name the emotion because they're worried that maybe they didn't do a strong enough job of showing it. And so they kind of just tag it on, you know, just in case you didn't know, you know, they, they shivered with fear, you know, <laughs> like that sort of thing. You don't, you almost never need that. You almost never need to, to say what it is. You should be just describing it. And so I always encourage people to really challenge themselves to think about, you know, how can I render this emotion on the page in a way where it's really 100% clear that this character is, he's shivering in fear. He's not shivering because he's cold or for some other reason. You know what I mean? It's how can I build elements through my description that's just going to reinforce this particular feeling? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, um... Oh, no, I don't think I have anything else to, to even comment. That was just such a good answer. Um, you've recently sold translation rights. Can you talk us through the process, how you went about selling them and any lessons that you guys have learned from that experience? Um, yeah, so 
it was really interesting what happened in our case because, of course, we're self-published, so we weren't really thinking about translation rights uh, from the get-go or anything like that. Um, it's different now, but back when we first published the Emotion Thesaurus, it was like 2012. And so back then, I mean, um, self-publishing was still a really dirty word. And, um, you know, you just, we did, weren't really thinking along those lines that maybe there was potential for, for our books in other languages. But what started happening is that we were being approached by sub-agents in other countries asking if the rights were available. And Becca and I were pretty busy already with all the other stuff that we were trying to manage. And we both felt like the last thing that we wanted to tack on to everything else is trying to work with publishers in another country when there's language barriers, when there's a lot of things that you need to know as a publisher or as a, um, the owner of a of property like that like tax law and um, withholding tax and things like that. There's lots of different things to know. Um, so we thought we should find an agent to kind of work with these people and, and see if there, a deal can be made. So we did, uh, we did look around. Um, we asked, we mentioned our situation to a few different um, agents and we finally found a really great one. Um, Marlene Seegers at Two C's Literary. And um, it's been great. I mean, if someone comes to us and they ask if the rates are available, we just pass them on to Marlene and then she and her, her agents and the sub-agents in each country, they kind of work with that publisher to see if a deal can come about. Um, and if she's at different events, uh, publishers approach her about it, then she contacts us with potential deals. So it's it's been really, really great. Um, and I'm so glad we went this route because some of our books have done really well in, in um, some countries, like, for example, Japan. Our books, the Emotion Thesaurus especially, and the Setting Thesaurus uh, were super popular over there. The Setting Thesaurus was the number one book out of all books sold on Amazon. Wow. Um, it, it's, it was on TV. It was on BuzzFeed. It was on all different kinds of stuff down there, which was just fantastic. And, and we had no, we would have never maybe thought on our own to to explore, you know, uh, foreign rights. So I'm really, really glad that we did. I would say um, that you definitely can choose to go it yourself. You can choose to negotiate these rights on your own. I do know authors that do it. And I know that there's support systems in place to find that kind of information. Um, Joanna Penn, you know, I know that she has had people on about foreign rights. I know that she has resources on her blog and stuff like that. Um, Ali is another one where, you know, they, they're very, they can be very helpful with that kind of information. Um, in our case, we decided to actually work with an agent. And like I said, it's been really helpful to have a go between, especially to sort of find out information about withholding tax and what that looks like and to have somebody, you know, give the publisher a nudge if you haven't gotten your royalty statements yet and all that kind of stuff. All of this was very new to Becca and I because we before we started self-publishing, we were not traditionally published. So we did not have any exposure to that sort of side of publishing. Mm -hmm. So um, we found having an agent has been really fantastic. So I would just make sure that you choose an agent that is, you know, their backlog, their, their other clients are, are people that are in your space, that are, you know, their books that are a lot like yours, um, so that you know that they have good contacts. And is that how you sort of initiated your searches by looking at similar uh, books and authors and who their um, agents and publishers might be? Or, I mean, 
Yeah, we, that's exactly what we did. Okay. We I think we looked on Amazon um, to see who had foreign editions mm -hmm. and it for writing guides and then who were the publishers for those foreign editions. Yeah. As somebody who's a fellow um, only ever indie, I mean, this whole trad world's just mind boggling to me i just i you know i've never even queried so i i find it all very interesting and um you mentioned ally there and they're doing a six-month program at the moment called the um ally foreign translation rights program and they've got a few authors in different genres all trying to sell rights at the london book fair and they're recording the sessions every six weeks or four weeks that i think we're doing them and it's just fascinating seeing the the process and and how indies because actually indie selling rights is still quite new um obviously there are indies who've been selling rights for a while but it's not as mainstream as say for example the kindle has now become you know from 10 years ago mm -hmm. so yeah i find this whole arena really interesting and um you know, especially because I haven't ever queried. So I'm like, yeah, but how do you do that? And, you know, so I'm asking all the naive questions now, but thank you. No, 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 it was really great. And uh, I think too, the other thing to remember is that you don't necessarily need an agent. You can decide to do it yourself. You can hire a translator and, you know, work with a translator one-on-one. -on -one. Um, that's another, like the wonderful thing about being indie is that there's so many options, you know, nothing is really off the table as far as processes to get your, 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 work out to your readers i mean that's the great thing about being in this side of things yeah and also you can try things and if it doesn't work or you don't like it well just sack it off and try something else you know, because we Absolutely. have that power we're not contracted um yeah. to to anyone um okay so I talk about multiple streams of income all of the time. I think it's really important for a variety of reasons, not least of which to protect yourself and your sort of financial... Um, um, no, the word's gone. Financial security, that's the word I'm looking for. God, must be late at night. Um, any tips for listeners who would like to have multiple streams of income? Because obviously uh, you guys have two businesses essentially don't you can you talk to us a little bit about your second business and um how you manage the chaos of what must be running two separate businesses chaos is a very good word yeah. <laughs> um well uh definitely you know i think that if you are trying to financially support yourself through your writing we do need to think wide we need to think about our intellectual property and all the different ways that it can be used um, and for a lot of writers, uh, they become speakers. They do do, you know, they'll speak to certain groups, subject matter um, that is tied into their book. If you wrote a book about, um, I don't know, let's take the dog lover example. If you did a bunch of research um, in that space and there was some kind of event for dog lovers, um, maybe some kind of conference or, or some big uh, thing with different booths and stuff like that, Maybe there's an opportunity to get involved with that organization. Um, maybe there's an opportunity to run a workshop of some kind um, to let people into uh, the world of a writer and, and a dog lover, something along those lines. Uh, another avenue that a lot of writers go for is they actually go to writing conferences and they teach writing. Because, of course, we all have to learn how to write well in order to um, you know, be an author, to be a successful author. And so a lot of people, they enjoy sharing what they know and they teach workshops. And that can be another stream of revenue for, for people. I would definitely recommend that if you're a fiction author to try to think of what ties to your book 
because you're much more likely to find your readers within the audience of events that are t that are tied to that specific area than you yeah. would potentially say teaching at a writers conference that could have you know many different writers that are in different genres that only a tiny subset may actually you know um, read the type of books that you write it's it's not that that's not off the table but try to think about uh, opportunities where you could do speaking where you're more going to be directly aligned to people that are most likely to um, be connected to your book through whatever makes it special. Yeah. Um, but yet for myself, I, Becca and I, we love creating these writing guides, but a problem that we ran into is that our guides are very big, as you know, and heavy. And as we were, you know, each and every one, as we were um, putting them out, we're thinking, oh my gosh, like, these poor people that are carrying like these stack of books to bookstores for their, <laughs> you know, like they're writing in a coffee shop and they're, they're hauling, you know, these phone books around, my goodness, because a lot of writers do like our books in print because they're very, very easy to navigate. You can see everything, all the information on a, on a particular emotion on a two page spread and things like that. So, you know, we, we realized that eBooks are not, uh, like they they work for many people do like ebooks because they're very portable they're not heavy um, but they're also not quite the best format for our books because we really like giving people the option of being able to see everything on a single entry all at once because it really helps you brainstorm quickly you're not scrolling through six pages on a kindle to see all the information that we have um, so we were thinking outside the box you know where how else can we kind of frame this information and make it helpful for people and so we got together with Lee Powell, who's the creator of Scrivener for Windows, um, and we built One Stop for Writers. And One Stop for Writers allowed us to do two things. First of all, put all of our thesaurus content in one place, because some are books, some were on our blog, some were on our hard drives, and so we really needed it all to be in one place. Um, anyone who has used our books, they know how useful they can be for brainstorming. So mm -hmm. when you have 16 of those type of thesauruses where you can look up talents and skills or symbolism or setting or weather or any of these different topics, character motivation, emotion, um, when you can see it all in one place, it just makes everything so much easier. The second thing that One Stop for Writers allowed us to do was Beck and I are out-of-the-box thinkers. And one reason why I think our guides have worked really well is because we challenged what the idea of a writing guide is. Um, our thesauruses are part educational, where we teach you how to use a better description on a, in a particular area, but then most of it is a thesaurus where we break down all the microtopics within that topic of setting or emotion or wounds or whatever the topic is, and we go through it all and create this incredible list of ideas. Um, and so thinking outside the box in that case really helped us think about how to help writers in a new way. That's a really big part of who we are. And we also like thinking about other ways we can help writers. So we built all different sorts of tools that don't exist. Things that, as writers ourselves, we really need. We know are gonna make it so much easier for us to build strong characters and really powerful stories. Um, and so it, One Stop for Writers has kind of become this library where we've been able to build all these different types of tools that just make all those puzzle pieces of storytelling so much easier to manage. Now it is a bit of a, a, a balancing act because it essentially is a whole second business um, that we have to run. Um, Becca and I 
are, I think what makes us successful is that we have an excellent relationship with Lee at One Stop the Writers. All three of us bring different skill sets to the table. We all are responsible for different things based on our strengths and weaknesses. And so together we make a really powerful team. Um, we really need to understand our time and the value of our time and make sure that we're really well organized. Um, as you know from the conversation that we've had recently in your Facebook group, we're big on making business plans. And so mm -hmm. every year, Beck and I will create a business plan for Writers Helping Writers and our books, and then for One Stop for Writers. And so we have to figure out, okay, how are we splitting our time this year? What are the big projects that we want to get done? Where are our focuses? Um, and what are the action items that we need to carry out by the end of the year? And it really comes down to becoming very good at kind of getting a read on when am I overreaching and trying to do too much? Like, what can I reasonably get done? I know this. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to giggle. Like a private like... joke here because this is such a struggle, right? Yes, um, the struggle is real. <laughs> the struggle is real, right? Because we always overreach. We're like, oh, I can write six books this year. You know, like yeah. we're always overreaching, and we have these grand plans in January of all the things we want to accomplish. But we need to remember that you need to build in time for things to go off the rails, for new opportunities to come on board, which is fine. But it also means that we need to get very good at assessing those opportunities as they come along. And so Beck and I, we understand what our big goals are for One Stop for Writers, for Writers Helping Writers every year. And when opportunities come along to join, participate in different collaborative marketing events or to go, um, if someone invites us um, to a conference to speak or something like that, we have to look at, is there time in the business plan? And is it helping me with one of the goals that I have for this business? And if the answer is yes, then we definitely will take advantage of that opportunity. But if the answer is no, then we have to, we have to sometimes decide to step back from that opportunity and just say, you know, unfortunately, the timing is not going to work. Keep me in mind for next year, something along those lines. Um, so yeah. because you've brought up business plans, I'm going to go totally off script here. Um, how do you find that having Becca as, because you are partners in crime, that also means you are accountable to each other. So do you find that the creation of the business plan, you become, um, okay, so what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is I quite often will write whether it be a business plan or a list of goals or things that I want to achieve in a year, by about June, I've gone off and done several other things. So I don't know if that's because I want to rebel against the structure that I've put in or if it's because I have, you know, I'm a shiny, ma like shiny magpie syndrome or, or what. But do you find that having somebody there like helps you to be more accountable? Do you find that you then end up staying on plan? Because so that's I think the two things I struggle with most are one sticking to a plan and an, a, and a rough timeline. And the second one is um, just that, as you were saying, knowing what's actually realistic and being able <laughs> being able to match that to, to time because I'm like I'm gonna do all of the things this year right. you know I'm definitely not gonna do all of the things but I want to I really do <laughs> well I think uh, like for Beck and I we didn't start with business plans but I uh we you know we would just kind of go through the year and okay have 
you know, kind of loose timelines. Okay, we're going to publish this book in September. So it means that we have to be organized by blah and the final revisions have to be in by here and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the rest was just all kind of like, you know, misty, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Like maybe something will happen in there. I don't know. I'm sure we'll fill our time because there's always, there's always way too much work and never enough time. That's the thing that's common with all of us because we all have families and other responsibilities. Some people have other jobs. That's just life. But um, where we got stuck is that we were starting to get frustrated because we felt like we were always certain things were getting pushed to the next year, to the next year. We get, oh, we don't have time to work on the website. We don't have time to do this. And it starts to get to you because these things, these little things that you don't address suddenly become big things and stumbling blocks where you want to do something really big and cool, but because you've got these little things hampering you don't have in place, you don't have a good um, kind of platform for, for marketing or whatever it is, or you haven't really researched something, you know, you're, you realize you can't take advantage of that opportunity. So that's kind of where you have to realize, okay, time for the big girl panties to go on <laughs> or the big boy panties to go on and uh, get organized. And so that's where Beck and I got to is it's like, we need to organize ourselves. And once we started following a business plan, everything changed for us. We were so much more productive because we followed this plan. And <clears throat> the link, you can share the link if you want with the, with the show notes on this, if you like. Um, but Beck and I, my husband is a business management consultant and he helps people with business plans all the time. So I asked him to sit down with us and help us form one. And we built one that has action items that, or, or sorry, focuses for us that are year after year after year. Like I don't imagine the focuses for our business plan ever changing. Um, it's only the action items that will go under each category, that sort of thing. And so um, year after year, we will build a business plan. We will decide what are the things that we need to get done this year. We always leave a little bit of room for magic because magic, magical things come along, right? Opportunities come along and you wanna be in a place take advantage of the good opportunities but you also need to become discerning about what's going <clears> to <throat> what's going to get you ahead as far as your goals and what is leading you on the merry path uh, that goes astray into another direction that you have no plans on going down and it's not going to further your goals so um like i said everything changed once we did this so i don't know that having becca necessarily made it all easier um, because we were kind of struggling when it was just the two of us. Um, we would always talk things out, which was super helpful. We were always on the same page when we would move forward. We always talked things through and our strategy through um, before we made decisions. All of those things have always been in place with us. But once we started following the business plan, it made a big difference because the plan on a page that I use that I've recommended that you link to, um, it's puts everything, all your goals on a single page you print it out, you put it on your wall right next to where you work. So every single time an action comes up, um, some opportunity, and you're like, oh, I want to do that. You look at your business plan and you see, you, you, you have to look at it and go, is there really room for this thing? Or is this pie in the sky? It's it just, it's impossible. And then you have to decide, okay, well, I really want to do this thing. So what am I willing to sacrifice? Mm. Sometimes when it comes down to sacrificing, you know, there's things on that list that you're like, okay, you know what? This thing is more important than that thing. So I'm going to talk to Becca and we're going to have a conversation about 
taking advantage of this and letting go of this other thing. Sometimes that may be where you where you get, but other times you realize it's apples and oranges and that you just need to stick to the plan. I'm so, giggling back here again because the thing that I usually sacrifice is sleep or self-care. That's probably why I end up oh, in a mess. 100%. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I don't think there's a writer um, out there that doesn't sacrifice those things. We all do. But we also... We want to we want to move forward without regret, right? You don't want to be at the end of the year looking at your business plan and going, oh, man, like what happened? And I didn't get this done and I didn't get that done. And now I feel like I'm more behind. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that feeling oh, totally. just drag you down. Yeah. It can and make that... you feel like I'm, I can't be successful because I just can't get it together. And so we really want to be, you know, deciding what's important and following through. I that's what makes us feel successful. I, there's so many things that you're saying that resonate. And that, that's, the weird thing is, even though this has been the biggest year ever because I left my job, that's also where I've got to. I've got to the point where I feel like I'm failing because I've left my job and actually I haven't completed any of the things in the first six months that I wanted to complete. And it's not because I haven't been trying, it's just because I've been doing the wrong things. And you know, part of that is about managing the client work versus managing my work. Um, But yeah, so many things that you're saying are making me um, have like many epiphanies. So thank you. I I think I think a thing to, to sort of think about is a lot of us don't have a business background. And yet being a writer, guess what? it's a business right (laughs) our intellectual property is a business whether or not we want to think about it that way or not and so all of a sudden we're forced to wear a different head yeah or a different hat than we're a different head that's (laughs) a really bad image (laughs) so we're used to wearing a different hat all of a sudden maybe something that we're not comfortable with that wasn't associated with our our day job if we had a, a day job or we had a job before And so it's all new and it's all fresh. And I guess where I come down to is the question, you know, when you started, when you first took your pen to a piece of paper and started writing, you first started typing the very first sentence to your first story, were you an expert? No. Um, It takes time to learn these skills. So give yourself a break. I mean, you just transitioned to full-time writer and it's going to take a while to figure out what this looks like for you Mm -hmm. and what you can accomplish and what you should focus on and what you shouldn't focus on. I mean, right now it's like Pandora's box is open and all the goodies are on the table and you're like a kid, you know, with candy everywhere. And oh my God, what do I eat first? Um, you know, because there's all these possibilities for you and your business and where it can go, mm. but you need to just slow down and figure out, okay, let's pace ourselves and let's figure out what are the most key elements to have in place so that everything else that comes along is just going to be so much easier. And so definitely, you know, cut yourself a break, invest time into talking to people about, you know, what is it like to be in, to have a business when you're a writer? You know, what, how did you make that shift from writing to marketing to running a business? Like, how did you make that leap? Because it is not necessarily an easy shift for a lot of people. It wasn't for me. It wasn't natural, especially marketing, because I'm not big on look at me promotion. Oh my gosh, I don't like that at all. So (laughs) marketing was tough until I figured out a way to do it that is me which is helping other people I like doing that it doesn't feel like marketing at all I it's perfect fit Mm. so there's a lot of information out there now I think um, as far as becoming um, you know turning yourself into a functional business as a writer so yeah just search for it 
Amazing, thank you. Um, okay, penultimate question then. This is the Rebel Author Podcast, so tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. I would have to say it was probably in 2012 when Becca and I published, self-published the, um, the Emotion Thesaurus. And the reason why that was super rebellious was because, like I said, back then there was not, it wasn't like it is now. Um, there was a lot of stigma around self-publishing. There was a lot of traditional industry sort of looking down on people who self-published. And so not only were Beck and I self-publishing a book at that time, but we were self-publishing a writing guide in the very industry that was very <laughs> negative towards self-publishing in general. And we were putting ourselves up there as an authority among people that were, you know, best-selling authors and agents and editors. Because, I mean, back then, all the books, they were all, like, the Writer's Digest books. You know, it was, like, Donald Moss and James Scott Bell and all these incredible, like, super smart people that have so much knowledge in their heads about writing and publishing. And here we are with our little, you know, motion to source guide saying, hey, yeah, we know a lot about this, and we'll just put this on the shelf here. And um, I think that that really... It took a lot of guts for us to do that. And there was certainly a lot of imposter syndrome that we had to work through because Beck and I both came from the traditional industry route where, you know, it's years and years of submitting work, being told you're not good enough, you know, getting an agent, the agent doesn't work out, you let go of your agent, you get another agent, you get to acquisitions, it doesn't work out, you query again, and then it goes to acquisitions again. And, it, you know, like that whole pattern of this isn't right for us you're a square peg trying to be fit into a round hole you know it really does eat away at your self-confidence it, it makes you feel like you know you're a poser you're an imposter so the fact that we came from that we were unpublished we didn't have any traditionally published novels at that point in time um, we were not editors we were not best-selling authors we were not agents in any way we didn't have any of that education or clout or authority and yet we published that book anyway that was definitely our rebel moment I love it and I love also you sort of alluded to this earlier um, that even the structure of your craft book is it's kind of rebellious because it is not your standard you know flowing prose type um, craft book so yeah I think you guys are both like secret rebels or maybe not so secret maybe open rebels um uh, yeah <laughs> um so where tell listeners where they can find out more about you and your books and your website um, and, and and everything well i am i am i like social media so i am almost everywhere so definitely look up my name angela ackerman and you'll find me on twitter facebook all those kind of good places um Definitely come to Writers Helping Writers. Uh, that's the blog that Becca and I run together. We've been doing it now for, I think, like 13 years, which makes me feel super old. Oh, my goodness. But, <laughs> I know, right? But it, there's just so much incredible knowledge there. Um, we have the Resident Writing Coach Program, which Sasha is a part of. <laughs> oh, stop. We, we invite, seriously, we invite incredible minds from all over to share their viewpoints on on writing craft and it's fantastic because different voices you get different insight and everybody benefits. so definitely come there's so many great articles especially on anything to do with writing craft show don't tell description emotion these are all things that we're really well known for um, you can also find me at one stop for writers uh, it's the site that Beck and I run with Lee Powell again it's my happy place 
Uh, it's where I get to create all these really great things that are going to help writers um, focus on their writing and get their books out faster and make everything easier. There is a free trial if you want to check it out. So there's, uh, you know, there's there's no barrier to do that if you would like that. Um, yeah, that's basically where you can find me. That's onestopforwriters.com and writershelpingwriters.net. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you very much to all of the patrons supporting the show. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And that is Sasha with a C. Thank you to everybody listening. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to the amazing Angela Ackerman and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'll be talking to Joan Dempsey all about how to create diverse characters, how you can do it with authenticity and how you can get it right. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review. (music) 